0: The time is now. The moment is urgent. This is an investment we have to make.
1: The China Current continues its special coverage on the coronavirus outbreak. Go to our social media, at The China Current, and our website for interviews, videos, and podcasts. I'm James Chow. Thank you. Surely, if we're to learn anything from COVID-19, it is that our global health workforce is non-negotiable in shaping a future that is safe, peaceful and prosperous. Thousands of nurses and doctors are infected in Wuhan, and as the outbreak spreads globally, there is every risk of that happening again. Dr Tedros has called for more urgent supplies so that our health workers can protect others by protecting themselves. Last year at the World Health Assembly, I met Dr. Vanessa Kerry, a physician at Massachusetts General Hospital. She is the co-founder and CEO of Seed Global Health, a non-profit that invests in health systems by training what's being described as needed professionals in resource limited settings. We sat down at the Palais in Geneva where the assembly was taking place. Dr. Vanessa Kerry, start off by telling me a bit about yourself, your background in medicine and how you've chosen to propel that into a completely different area of work, which we'll talk about in just a minute.
0: My career, um, the starting of Seed Global Health in many ways, was born the day I was born. I grew up in a house of public service with a father who was in politics and in one form or another, and a mother who grew up as an advocate for depression at a time when nobody was really talking about it. She wrote a book called You Are Not Alone, Voices of Hope and Experience for the Journey Through Depression, at a time when nobody was willing to destigmatize the the condition. And so I had seen both my parents really be champions of important causes, and that was something that just was in my lifeblood. And when I was 14, my father took me on a trip to Vietnam when he was trying to normalize relations. And I'd had the experience of seeing some of the poverty and disparities we have in the United States, but I was really shocked by the poverty that I saw in Vietnam. I had never experienced quite that degree of widespread poverty. I mean, everywhere we went, I felt like people did not have enough. Not enough clothes, not enough food, there was not access to services, there were not many cars, there was no electricity, there was no running water. And I was 14, so I can't pretend I had it all figured out at all, but it really stuck with me. So that when I went to medical school, I was deciding to go to medical school, and I knew I'd always wanted to be a doctor. I believed in being in service to the people, and I loved the physiology of medicine. I also knew I had to do something about what I had seen. And before I'd gone to medical school, I spent some time traveling around the world. And I lived on, you know, you know, backpacking more or less, and I spent more time going to parts of the world that didn't have much of anything. And so I saw more poverty and more inequity and more disparity. And by the time I went to medical school, I knew I needed to combine a career in medicine with this global health dilemma that I saw coming or that I saw present, I should say. And so when I was in medical school, I started to work in Ghana, Uganda, Rwanda, And I saw this phenomenon of people flying in, delivering care and flying out, but nobody was fundamentally partnering with these countries to change their agency and the capacity of what they could do. The brilliance of our counterparts on the ground in sub-Saharan Africa, who are tired of the fact that they bear a quarter of the world's burden of disease, but only have 3% of the world's healthcare workforce with which to address that disease, and only 1% of the world's healthcare expenditure. There's been a really important movement to, to train community health workers, skilled birth attendants, frontline providers um, that are critical to increasing access. But if you train them and you don't train the support for them, the, the doctors, nurses, midwives, and the health professionals that make up the backbone of the health system, you're gonna leave all those people out Without a referral base, without opportunities for continual professional development, it's unfair to them, it's unfair to the health system, and you fundamentally invest in two standards of care.
1: You speak for not a government, you don't speak for a country, you speak for people. And off that, if you could just break down, I'll ask you a couple of quick questions over here. Why is it important to have a robust Workforce, We are million short. I believe it's 18 million 18 short million. right now. What happens um, when you don't have the 18 million around? What's going to be the human impact cost?
0: Health is fundamental. There is a return on investment in health of, you know, nine for every one unit that you put in an investment, if you will. It is immense in terms of being able to increase GDP. So countries that have longer life expectancy have higher GDP. On a household level, a quarter of households that get affected by non-communicable disease will have such catastrophic costs that they'll fall under the poverty line. Half the houses affected by malignancy will fall under the poverty line. A study was done in Zambia that showed when the main breadwinner dies of HIV, two-thirds of households have an 80% decrease in income, 60% of households have to move to cheaper housing, 40% of households lose access to cleaner running water, 21% of girls in those households stop going to school, 17% of boys stop going to school.
1: When you provide a robust health workforce, essentially further down the chain, you're helping countries deliver on a fantastic economy, wealth, opportunities, employment. If the incentive is so strong, what do you think it is in our culture as members of mankind that makes us so slow to learn all these lessons? What is it?
0: I've always tried to make sense of that. It's a great question, and I'm not sure I have the answer. I think that There's always competing priorities among governments when I speak to them. Do I start by building the roads and the infrastructure that people can use to get to the hospital? For me though, everything does fundamentally start with health because if you're healthy, you can go to school. If you're healthy, you can care for your family. If you're healthy, you can show up for work. It's critically important. Investing in people, I think, has traditionally never been a prioritized thing. If you look at the 1980s and structural readjustment programs, the major multinational entities were pushing governments to not invest in the social sector. We don't value education. We don't value health for some strange reason. You heard Madam President, you know Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, the former president of Liberia, speak about the importance of delivering health as the fundamental piece of rebuilding her country from conflict. Further, you know, Ebola happened in, in West Africa at a scope and scale that it did because there were not enough health professionals to, you know, recognize what was happening, to sound the alarm and to mount the response. A single three-year-old boy in December of 2013 became a $53 billion economic hit, about $30 billion of which was just from the disruption of health services after Ebola not direct Ebola care. 28,000 cases, 11,000 deaths, six countries six continents 230 health workers killed and 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 madam president her first action basically was to call for the training and education of her healthcare workforce to rebuild so it never happened again and she could invest in the most fundamental pillar for the future development of her country
1: china is trying to increase its own health workforce, as we heard just now at that session, from about 209,000 GPs to about 700,000 GPs. But the second point is, where are those doctors going to go? Because I know they say GPs, but in China we have a problem because people, whether it be from a cold to a cough to cancer, they just go to the hospitals because it's more lucrative for doctors to work there What would you say? I mean, these are two great countries, United States and China. What do you think that they all need to do in response not only to emergencies like Ebola, but also in terms of providing the primary health care that leads to UHC?
0: So Ebola is an acute emergency that you see play out rapidly over time. We are in a primary care emergency, though, globally, certainly in the United States, certainly in China and everywhere. And That needs to be recognized as an emergency, as such. We could save so much money on one note, but more importantly, we could save so much suffering, indignity, morbidity, mortality, if we invested on the prevention side, and that is directly delivered through primary care. If you can address disease earlier, if you can partner with communities, with patients individually, if you can help provide that kind of direct service delivery at an earlier phase than later, it's absolutely going to cost less, but also much less of you know traumatizing with much less suffering, much less death. And it is going to be scaling up GPs, but it's not just scaling up the numbers, it's scaling up numbers and making sure that we are delivering health in the places where it is needed, closest to the communities, because that also will start to unburden the tertiary care center. We helped open the doors of a school of midwifery in northern Uganda. We provided half the faculty the school needed to get its accreditation. It's just graduated its first two classes over the last two years of midwives, 74 graduates over the last two years, almost all 74 are working in the north part of the country where they were trained and they're all employed. That's a huge statement of what it means when you actually provide quality education training and show what it means to deliver care in a quality way in the places that you want to see it.
1: So the seed question will be, you've trained about 16,000 health professionals now, where are you going to go next?
0: It's a great question. So C just launched its new strategy. Um, We focus on enhancing the breadth and quality of education that is delivered in the classroom and in didactics and in the pedagogy and bringing new and innovative ways of learning. The second pillar is focused around clinical mentorship training and practice improvement. We bridge that theory to practice gap, which many organizations don't do and is critically important. But the third pillar for us now is about public policy and advocacy really recognizing that we need to build nurturing environments for the interventions that we are making. We've made many, many meaningful interventions in global health over the last 30 years of really recognizing global health issues. But many of them have been vertical. Many of them have been very targeted. The one place we've never really intervened or invested in is in the full health and comprehensive healthcare workforce needed to deliver care.
1: And we need that, to,
0: to me, is urgent.
1: And we need to take care of that workforce as well. It's not just getting them into place and getting them to deliver. Retain
0: them, honour them. Absolutely. Exactly.
1: And to to honour, I think, is a great work. I do quickly need to ask you though about what the president said uh, about youth and women being the future of this. Do you see that reflected in the numbers and in the nature of the people you train?
0: So the vast majority of our work is in um, women's health and training women. Because we do nurses and midwives, and the vast majority of nurses and midwives are women, youth is critically important for us. We taught a young um, student in Tanzania, for example, who we, sh- we helped show neonatal resuscitation. After he spent time working with us, he went on to a rotation where the team was passing a child, a small baby who wasn't breathing. Everybody kept walking and he said, there's a protocol for this. He felt her pulse, initiated resuscitation, saved the child's life and was so struck that without equipment, just knowledge, he could change the course of a child's life. He ended up organizing trainings all around Tanzania and was committed to staying in Tanzania and teaching. The time is now. The moment is urgent. This is an investment we have to make and C Global Health is deeply committed to helping that movement forward both through what we're doing in our country, partner countries, as well as the advocacy that we want to bring forward at the World Health Organization and elsewhere.
1: I want to go back to how you began. You went to Vietnam at that time. You said you saw inequity and you saw injustice. What does that mean?
0: If I'm really honest, there's an element of guilt having been born as a white American full of opportunity. You know, I I understand the irony of saying I got to go to Vietnam when I was 14 and this is what I saw. And so for me, what I have never been able to really be at peace with is the fact that there are two standards. There's technically multiple standards, but... I simplify it down to the fact that there really are two standards of how people live and don't live. And I think there's a growing wealth gap now, a growing resource gap now. And we have a responsibility, those of us who have access, who have education, who have the ability to help find ways to change, to not only help create that change, but to create opportunity for those that are most deeply affected to create the change.
1: Well, you may have had the opportunity to go to Vietnam when you were 14 years old, but you took something away. You applied it and you're beginning that transformation for everybody. Dr. Vanessa Kerry, thank you very, very much. Thank you. It's an honor.